the ships of the merchant. She brings, food, she brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She drinks strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. So let's turn our Bibles now to 1221. Uh, 1220, my apologies. We'll start at 1220, and that's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we go from there to chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Henry, did you want to say anything about Slido, or have you already done that? You never know. Yes. Yeah. Um, so on the uh, seats, uh, you have a card with a gold-colored uh, thingy. Um, it's got a uh, QR code. Um, so after the uh, sermon today, there will be a question and answer time, uh, and you can ask the questions anonymously. Uh, if you want to ask the question, your question anonymously, then you need to scan the QR code. Uh, the questions will then come to my phone. I'll tell Rob what the questions are. You can also ask the questions uh, by raising your hand if you want to do that. Uh, so. Yeah, that's what we'll be doing. So keep your questions uh, on hand. You can start scanning the code if you want to put your questions in while Rod is uh, teaching us, uh, but uh, concentrate on uh, the preaching of the word. Absolutely. Thanks, Henry. If you want to find out where that Malaysian restaurant in Julford is, put on Slido. Uh, Henry will answer that question for you. Uh, anyway, it's good to be here, and uh, you know, it's, it's been a little while since I've been here. Uh, in case you don't know, uh, my name is Rod. I'm... Fr I'm part of the, the ministry that looks after Wild Street and St. Matthews, uh, and so I'm often up at uh, Wild Street in Maruba there, and I'll be heading off, as Dick Henry said before, a little earlier after, after the, before the meeting's finished, but it's great to be back with you th this morning uh, and looking at God's Word together. Uh, when Claire Smith, the author of the book God's Good Design, was asked uh, how feminism had impacted the way we think about women and men and relationships such as marriage, she said, the most obvious word that came to mind is confusion. This kind of area that we're in this morning in some senses. Uh, but she went on to say that people are having significant identity issues. Uh, we see that, don't we? It's not uh, a surprise to us now. But people are confused about what it means to be a man or a woman. And they're confused about how to make marriage work. Uh, in most of the recent public discourse on gender, uh, it feels very much like we have, a, as a society, adopted a confrontation mentality. Male and female are being played off against one another. Uh, often people are scared to kind of contribute to the conversations for fear that you know, their words may be misconstrued or that they will inadvertently say the wrong thing and scorn will rain down on them. You know, I remember after a time that I'd been bullied at school uh, and my parents found out about it and my mum insisted on taking me to the principal with the evidence in her hand uh, and all I can remember going through my mind at the time was do I really have to do this you know do I I don't want to do this can't we just kind of let it be and move on I don't want to stir up any more trouble for myself and can I say sometimes people in my position today feel a little the same way uh, we're dealing with a topic that impacts people's emotions uh, today, the Apostle Peter takes us to the kind of sharp end, if you like, of what it means to live as a Christian, particularly among the tricky waters of marriage. And he tells 
live lives that are shaped by God's grace towards us. And he does it in this very important but also most sensitive of areas of marriage. And so while on, on one hand we might be tempted to think, oh, well, I might be tempted to think, do I really want to do this? On the other hand, I think, well, yes, I do want to do this because we actually do need to talk about these issues, don't we? God has something very important to say to us about these matters. But our society has stopped listening to God. And what's the result of shutting our ears to God? Well, it's what we see all around us today. It's confusion. And that leads, I think, to brokenness and pain and sadness. And so perhaps you're a little like me, uh, frustrated and concerned by the confusion and the damage that it's doing. Uh, perhaps it's even the confusion in, our, in your own marriage or that of someone else who is close to you that you care deeply for. We need marriages to work, don't we? And it's not just couples who need marriages to work. Our society needs marriages to work. Children need marriages to work. Young people who aren't yet married need to see marriages that work. And they need to understand before they get married what they ought to be looking for in a marriage partner and what kind of marriage partner they need to be. And older people want the marriages of their adult children to work because that creates family cohesion and a greater likelihood that they'll have a relationship with their grandchildren. And so we need good marriages, don't we? Our whole society has a vested interest in that. And, well, God has something to say about the way that we conduct our marriages as Christians. But more than that, in this passage, Peter has a, a particular concern for wives with unbelieving husbands. And he shows that God offers us hope where things feel hopeless. He offers us comfort where we're hurting and he offers us strength where we feel powerless. And so no matter what, your, what our circumstances are, he wants to use us to honour and to glorify him. And so before we go any further this morning, why don't we just pray and ask God to do that for us today. So let's just bow our heads and ask him to do that. Our gracious God, we pause before you now knowing that as we come to your word today, we come to a, an issue that our world is confused about, that we have lots of opinions around, and that we have great brokenness in the midst of it. And so, Father, as we think about it today and as we reflect on your word to us, as Peter wrote it so many years ago, we pray, Lord God, that you would give us hearts and minds that are open to hear your word to us today. Whatever our feelings are, whatever our circumstances or experiences are, we pray, Lord God, that we would be able to hear you speak to us. And so we ask for your help with that this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's just turn back then to uh, God's Word, where we just read then uh, from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, you know we've been in 1 Peter now for a few weeks, and we come to this particular chapter. It's part of a section that is longer, uh, which started last week. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, let me just read it again. He says there, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The Bible teaches some outrageous things, doesn't it? Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Don't be anxious about anything. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Wives, 
be subject to your own husbands. Now, if we ever kind of doubted that living distinctively uh, Christian lives meant going against the flow of our society and culture, then this passage, I think, ought to leave us in no doubt. I mean, to ask wives to be subject uh, or to submit is one of the most out-of-place things in our modern world. And yet the idea of subjection is actually basic to the Christian life. Now, often the problem we have with hearing these kinds of things uh, is the context that we bring to it. So our own husbands, uh, the marriage of our parents, feminism, maybe examples we've seen where the principles have been abused. And so let's just take a moment to get the context right here because I want to I take you back for a moment to chapter 2 where we started reading before. We actually partway through where we read before. Chapter 2, verse 11 through to 13a. Let me just pick it up there. If you've got your Bibles with you, it's great to have them open so you can see what it's actually saying. And picking it up there at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when you speak against, they when, sorry, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, of course, whenever you're told to do something, it's a fair call, isn't it, to want to know who is asking you and what they're like. When God speaks to us, we need to understand that God is not our enemy. He is our greatest lover. Peter calls them beloved. That is who we are to God. Beloved, is, it's a term of great warmth and depth of devotion. God is not asking us, asking anything of us that he hasn't already done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, re remember that the one who is asking you to be subject is the one who has already subjected himself to the cross to die our death, to pay, our sin, pay for our sins. He's the one who has given us eternal, imperishable and inglorious a glorious inheritance. And so the first area of context is to actually understand what God is like. The God who is calling on you to be subject to your own husband. And of course, the second thing is that when our marriages operate God's way, they will not only bring honour and glory to God, but they will be a powerful testimony to a watching world and it will help lead some to be saved. See, the call on, the, on Christian wives to be subject to their own husbands, not any husband, remember, uh, or indeed any man, but the call here is in line with the subjection that is appropriate for the Christian in other areas as well. And so Peter recognises that a woman who has this attitude can have a powerful impact on her husband. I mean, if her husband is an unbeliever, he may be won over not with words, but by her respectful and pure conduct. Now, without words doesn't imply that husbands can believe a gospel that they've never heard. It's that they do not obey the word that they know. And so there's a missionary aspect to the way that we conduct our lives as Christians, and here particularly as Christian wives. See, remember verse 12, back in chapter 2? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, verse 12 is the headline to this whole section. Submitting ourselves to the appropriate authorities, always conducting ourselves honourably 
will be a powerful witness to unbelievers. And so here, the unbelieving husband may be won over, and not by his wife's convincing words, but when they see your respectful and pure conduct, verse 2 of chapter 3. Now, the word respectful there in verse 2 is the same word translated as fear over in chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, if you're a Christian, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, a Christian wife is, sub is to submit to her husband out of fear or out of reverence for God. Now, it, it may not be the way that our modern society thinks. It may be ridiculed to actually think that way, but we do not live out of reverence to the world and its ways. We live out of reverence for God and His ways. And we may be laughed at, we may be ridiculed, even opposed, but we're strangers in this world, remember. Not living in the futile ways of this world that will perish, but honouring God and taking our lead from Jesus. And so what does it mean then to be subject to your own husband? Well, the idea is to place yourself under someone else voluntarily. It's an attitude that's willing to accept and follow your own husband's authority and leadership. When you submit, it's not making a statement of superiority, that one is necessarily greater than the other. It's an issue of relationship. The equality of husband and wife is emphasised down in verse 7 of chapter 3. It's actually how we relate as God's people out of reverence for Christ for the sake of unity and to bring glory to God. And it needs to be said that it, it's God who calls on wives to be subject to their own husbands. Now, for the wife, her subjection is to be exercised voluntarily in reverence to God. It is never a husband's task to demand his wife subject herself to him. And subjection to a good and godly husband is a good thing. It's his responsibility to work for your good. And it's the making of a beautiful and a worthwhile marriage. It doesn't, however, place conditions on your submission so that you can pick and choose if and when you want to submit. I don't, however, want to suggest that being subject has no limitations. I mean, clearly you are to subject yourself to Christ first. Wives are not to submit in ways that are contrary to God's demands. And sadly, it needs to be said that no wife has to submit to physical and mental abuse. There are laws to protect, protect you from detestable actions like that. And you shouldn't hesitate to get the protection that you need. Come and see me or Andy if you have questions about that kind of thing. But notice that there is special encouragement for those women who are married to non-believers. Your behaviour can have a remarkable effect on your husband. But your influence won't be external. Notice it will be who you are internally. Look at verse 3 there of chapter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good 
and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, you may remember Martin Luther King's great freedom speech in America. Uh, in one line of his speech, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. Well, today perhaps we could modify it to say something like, I have a dream that my little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the brand of their clothing, by the style of their hair, nor by the cost of their accessories, but by the character of their hearts. See, Peter isn't saying that Christians shouldn't adorn themselves, uh, not externally at all. I mean, otherwise you'd all be sitting in front of me naked right now. That'd be quite disturbing. Uh, and he's not advocating asceticism, the kind of self-denial in relation to our appearance that says that we can only shop at Vinnie's, uh, you need to stop wearing all jewellery and use a rubber band to tie your hair out of your eyes until your husband has a time to cut it for you at home. He's not saying that. Peter's not saying that we shouldn't care about our appearance. He's not saying you can't have a nice dress or get your hair done or wear some jewellery. But he is saying, quite emphatically, don't let the externals be the substance of your beauty and don't kid yourself either. Otherwise, all you are is a hollow shell, only as good as next season's fashions. So you have as much character as a mannequin and as much hope of glorifying God as seeing your, and seeing your husband one to Christ as I have of winning next year's Sydney with Bert. Yeah. People who know me? Anyway. The true beauty of a Christian woman or man, can I say, will be seen as they cultivate the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. See, if you spend more time in front of a mirror than you do in front of a Bible, then it will give you an idea of what kind of track you're heading down. If you spend more money on adorning yourself than you do on gospel ministry, then again, it may be an indicator of the beauty that you are seeking. See, who you are on the inside, the character of your heart, is just so much more important than what you try to make yourself on the outside. And you don't need to be an introvert to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not what he's talking about. A gentle wife is a wife who doesn't insist on her rights, is not pushy or manipulative. A quiet wife is peaceful, not rebellious. And you can be loud and vivacious on the outside and still cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit that is very precious in God's sight. It's simply the fruit of the Spirit in the heart of the Christian, and it's very beautiful. And so Peter points his readers to Sarah here, Abraham's wife, as a model of godly beauty in submitting herself to her husband. Now, Abraham, of course, isn't an example of an unbelieving husband, but God's call upon Abraham's life meant that Sarah needed to submit to Abraham's leadership of their family, and at times to do so with great cost, and even fear of the circumstances and outcomes that she faced. See, Abraham and Sarah aren't a picture of the perfect couple. I mean, their mistakes are recorded for us. But they feared God. And Sarah, in submission to Abraham, respected her husband and his God-given role. And so let me just say, if I can, to the singles who are amongst us, if you're pursuing a relationship with the opposite sex, and if it's based on the externals, 
then you've got a problem right from the start. You're not pursuing the kind of relationship that is going to glorify God. And men, if what you're looking for in a woman is all based on the external appearance, then you're doing your sisters in Christ a great disservice. And can I also say, if you're contemplating a relationship with a non-Christian, somehow hoping that you'll win him or her over, then you're disobeying God and making a terrible mistake. You can't use this passage to somehow conclude that it's okay to go and find a non-Christian spouse to win to Christ. But let me uh, move on more specifically now to the husbands and to men more generally. Because God wants Christian men to be honourable husbands. Now look at verse 7, chapter 3. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, Peter begins addressing husbands as he does the wives. Likewise, husbands. Now, if wives are likewise to be subject, verses 13 and 18 of chapter 2, then what does it mean in the case of husbands? Now, I think, again, we need to head back to verse 12 of chapter 2. Likewise, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. See, husbands are to honour their wives, verse 7 of chapter 3. And perhaps we could include uh, verse 17. Likewise, honour everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God. See, certainly, Christian husbands, like wives, men like women, are to be subject to the Lord. Or verse 16 of chapter 2. Likewise, use your freedom from sin and judgment to live as servants of God in this case, with your wives. Now, it may even include the example of Jesus in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2, who bore our sin so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, God wants husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way. Hear, hear, I hear our wives say. Uh, What does it mean, if my wife was here, she would say it, I'm just saying. What does it mean to live in an understanding way with our wives? Well, I think Peter spells it out for us, and it involves two key things. First, understand and honour the woman as the weaker vessel. And second, understand that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, that ought to shape your understanding, attitude, and behaviour towards your wife, if you understand those things. Is it sexist to describe a woman as the weaker vessel? Well, in one respect, it is sexist. If by using that word, you mean that it makes a distinction between men and women. Peter certainly is differentiating between men and women here. But if you mean by sexist that it's saying that women are inferior to men, well then no, it's not at all sexist. Not in the least. It's not in any way a statement about a person's worth. Describing a woman as a weaker vessel is not a qualitative comment on her worth. That's completely obvious when it goes on to say that we are equally heirs together of the grace of God. I mean, the claim that wives are heirs with us of the grace of life was absolutely astounding in the ancient world. That's because women were never, ever considered to be heirs of anything or anyone. And so this is a most remarkable statement and one that we generally miss. Christianity has done remarkable things for the status and welfare of women. In God's eyes, men and women 
are absolutely equal in worth, but different in the way that he's made us. I mean, if we weren't, we couldn't have children. I mean, the most obvious way to, to understand Peter's words is the physical difference between men and women. Some may want to blur those distinctions, but God doesn't want us to do that. We blur those distinctions to the detriment of women. We need to be understanding of how God has made women. And possibly, possibly it goes even further than merely physical. You know, men, we have plenty of weaknesses, don't we? That our wives, and often women more generally, have to put up with. No wonder they're called to be gentle. Perhaps that reveals something of our weaknesses. But I am in danger of highlighting my strengths. That's my problem. Particularly in comparison to my wife. To somehow build myself up at her expense. Now, one of the guys uh, from our church reminded me just the last couple of weeks that I said, I must have said something a few years ago along these lines. He reminded me that I, I'd highlighted that I need less sleep than my wife. That's true. But he also reminded me that I had confessed that sometimes I had been known to point that out to my wife with pride. Wicked man that I am. See, the danger, of course, is that instead of being understanding, as I'm called to be, I actually use my strength to puff up my pride and put down my wife. Don't do that, God says. I mean, if that's the kind of thing that you do, you need to repent. Why? Because your wife is an heir with you of the grace of life. Did Jesus die for you? He died for her too. Have your sins been forgiven? So have hers. Have you been given an inheritance that will never perish? So has she. Did God love you? He loves her just as much. See, you are a, a foolish and a wicked man if you treat your wife in any way other than with great understanding, tenderness and love. You are to honour her. And you fail to honour her when you crush her by your moodiness and sulking. You fail to honour her when you frighten her by your verbal abuse. You fail to honour her when you betray her by your infidelity. When you anger her by your laziness when you demean her by your insensitive ways that you might try and have sex, when you weary her by leaving her to do both yours and her share of the work, when you humiliate her by your childishness, when you remind her of her failure in the face of your perfectionism, when you disappoint her by your lack of leadership in prayer and in Bible reading, by making her feel insecure or failing to care for her, by de be de being demanding and overbearing. You fail to honour her when you hand her sole care of your kids, spiritual and physical well-being and instruction. See, Peter links our failure to honour our wives as heirs with us in the grace of life with the failure of our prayers as men. Now, it seems that God will not listen to the prayers of a man who fails to honour his wife. Now, maybe because it calls into question the genuineness of the Christian faith in that man. There is a great danger here for men, I think. We need to take stock of our marriages and we need to do all that we can and must to honour our wives. Well, we should not, I don't think, read these passages as if they stand alone outside their context. 
hopefully we haven't been doing that but christian marriages are of course a part of god's call for all christians to live such good lives among the gentiles so that when they speak of you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify god on the day of visitation back in chapter 2 verse 12. if our lives are to be missional lives then our marriages are to be missional marriages they're to lead people to glorify god they're to witness to the goodness and grace of god in the death and resurrection of jesus christ who died to save us see here is god's mission strategy for our life in the home especially for those of us who are married to non-believers although i do want to just pick, put out a quick disclaimer if i can because even when wives of unbelieving husbands do live incredibly godly lives with their husbands they still may not become Christians. It's not a guarantee. It doesn't suggest that you haven't been godly enough. And if that's you, you need to hear that. But our fear of God frees us to serve others, even in the face of those things that may be frightening. Our good works will have a missional impact. That is, they will be a witness to others of the goodness and the grace of God. And non-believing husbands may be won over without words by the respectful and pure conduct of their wives. See, we don't just need to invite people to evangelistic events. Our lives are the evangelistic events. And not just in the home, but everywhere we go. Our lives don't replace the speaking of the gospel. But nevertheless, your life is the front line of mission, whether in the home or wherever you go and so let's make it our aim to live grace-filled marriages and grace-filled lives to the glory of god our savior and to jesus christ our lord let's pray our gracious god we thank you for being with us this morning as we've together sought to reflect on your word and hear you speak to us Father, these are your words to us, that we might hear you, understand your goodness and your love towards us, and respond in faith and obedience. Please help us in these tricky waters where our world is so at odds with you and your ways. Help us not to be ashamed that we bear the name of Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.